0: is Criminal Behaviorology, to assist the criminal and civil justice systems, to improve our society, a podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph.
1: Hello, this is Criminal Behaviorology. I'm your host, Timothy Joseph. Great to have you with us again. We are going to have another Novel Uses of ABA webinar. This will be the third installment in May of 2021, so just uh, keep uh, looking at the Facebook page for any updates on that. Today is a great episode, uh, if I do say so myself. This is uh, Jeanette Fennell she had a rather dramatic beginning in her advocacy of car safety. Kidnapped at gunpoint with her husband, she and her husband were placed in the trunk of their own car and transported to an unknown location. After they managed to escape with their bare hands, she sought out data on cases of trunk entrapment and what could be done in terms of prevention. In time, she helped mandate interior trunk releases for all cars in the United States. Because of the efforts of this one-woman data collection machine, she began to work on the phenomenon of children dying in hot cars after lapses in uh, awareness by their parents. And I became aware of this after seeing an interesting uh, documentary film about this very phenomenon. So this episode focuses on the tragic and the hopeful. Dr. David Diamond, memory expert and neuroscientist, joins us to discuss his role in answering the question, how could a parent mistakenly leave their own child in a vehicle? As hundreds of children have died in hot car deaths and notable criminal prosecutions have resulted, we delve into the intricacies of the human memory and technologies that could save the lives of many in the future. This is Criminal Behaviorology, and I'm here with uh, Jeanette Fennell. How are you today?
0: I'm doing great. How about yourself, Tim?
1: Fantastic. I'm so glad you're here. And you are uh, from the, you're many things, but you're from the organization Kids and Cars. It's kidsandcars.org.
0: That is correct. It's all one word.
1: Okay. Well, you know, uh, you've had a very interesting uh, beginning this journey about safety for children and cars how did it all start for you
0: well you know uh, sometimes i say i have a very short answer to that and um, that is i got started kicking and screaming Mm -hmm. well no i think i want the longer answer (laughs) so um, the longer answer is and this is what happened uh, back in 1995 Um, it was halloween weekend and we had had dinner with friends of ours and we brought our nine month old baby with us because uh, they wanted to meet him. So um, after we had a lovely dinner, we drove back. Um, the dinner was in, um, in in Mill Valley, which is north of San Francisco. And we lived in San Francisco at the time. Mm-hmm. So we drove home. And by the time um, we got there, Um, We opened the garage door and I was looking at the um, clock because I went, Oh no, it's so late. And, you know, we taught um, Sunday school on Sunday mornings and we didn't have our um, plan for what our presentation would be. But then I remembered, Oh no, it's not so late because the time's going to change. So I, you know, it's just so vivid how you remember those little things. But so we pulled into the garage, but before the garage door had a chance to come all the way down Two masked men with guns uh, rolled underneath the garage door and um, put a gun in our face and said, "You know, get in the trunk." And it's just like, you know, you're just so shocked. You know, you first think is they must be in the wrong garage because why would you know why would they be taking us? So, um, so obviously we complied because they were loaded guns and. And um, they put us in the trunk of our car, and um, all the while we were so worried because our nine-month-old baby was, you know, in the back seat of the car all along. Well, once they shoved us in the trunk, and I, that's both of us, so you can imagine it was a little tight in there. And um, they opened the car door, and I heard them say, "There's a baby." So up to point, they didn't know that there was a baby in the back seat, and. You know, it was like five seconds later, you could tell they opened the garage door and they were taken off with, with in the trunk of our own car. So um, immediately, of course, the, the real fear is for the baby. Because the thought of him being inside a vehicle with uh, two men with guns is the most frightening thought, you know, I'm guessing for any parent ever. So... Um, I, my, my husband was in the trunk closest to the back seat. I was in the trunk closest to the bumper. So, you know, I kept saying, can you can you hear anything? Can you, t-? you know, so he says, no, I, I can't hear anything. And then I remember, you know, just kind of panicking and saying, you know, I just saw this Oprah. Um, I, just, I just saw this Oprah um, program. And it said, you know, if you don't get away from your camp- captors in the first five minutes, you're dead. And my husband was saying, well, it's a little bit too late for that now. So, um, you know, here we are in the trunk of our car, no idea what's going on and going through the streets of San Francisco. And obviously, you know, with two large adults in the back of a car, it's bottoming out and, and, you know, it was horrific. So we're praying, we're trying to see if there's um, any way we can detect if our son's still in the car. And, um, yeah, you know, going through the streets of San Francisco. Then we could tell, you know, it is kind of interesting. You can kind of get a sense, even though you're in the trunk, but you kind of get a sense for what's happening because you can tell when you stop at a stop sign and turn left and right. Mm-hmm. And I that we were headed south, um, which ended up being correct. But then um, we got on the freeway, and that's when I thought it was all over. I said, you know, I don't know where they're taking us, but this does not look good Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting when you think your life is going to end. Um, you just do whatever you get into this survival mode. So what I did was I started pulling at the the trunk. I I don't know why, but you know, like there's carpet in there and I just kept pulling on things. Well, when I pulled on this one area, it exposed some wires. Mm -hmm. And so the wires, um, you know, I, I didn't know what they were for, but my thought process was, well, if I could make some make something happen in the back, like short out the backup lights or something, that maybe someone on the freeway following us would um, see that there's something wrong, call the police, and maybe we could get out of there. So um, that's what I did, and I'm pulling and pulling and, you know, trying to, to get a message to someone. And then, um, as we were doing that, they went off the freeway, and again, you can really tell they were on a off ramp, and then you could tell where they stopped, and they turned right, and then they're on surface streets again. And I'm like, "Where in the world are they taking us?" And yeah, of course, all the worst scenarios go through your head. Well, then we were off road, and that's when kind of both of our hearts sank because. You know, who knew what was going to go on next? So we're going bump, 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 bump. And then finally, the car stops. But but I could hear another car running. And I could hear them say, make sure you get it set right. Get it set right. And, you know, you're inside a trunk. You have no idea what they're talking about. So I'm thinking, you know, that they have the baby and they have a gun to their head. And they're going to, like, open the trunk and say, do this or do that. Oh, we're gonna blow this kid away, you know, that that kind of thing. So um the, then they came um and and started talking to us through the trunk of the car. And when they um they, they were asking things like, How much money do you have? Um, you know, give us all your jewelry, give us your ATM, but you know, all that is again through the trunk of the car. So finally they opened the trunk and, you know, I, I've got a bad bag and I had been, you know, laying like this for a long time. And I wanted to try to get a sense for where we were. So I popped up and then I got hit in the back of the head with a gun mm-hmm. and back down and said, don't you be looking around. So obviously I didn't do that again, but that's when, you know, they asked for you know, our wallets, our cards, our jewelry, you know, just anything and everything that we had. So, you know, we applied, and then they kept asking for the PIN number. And um, and um they kept asking and kept asking. I'm thinking, wow, these guys are kind of dumb. But then I realized, well, they probably are doing that, so you, they know you're not lying. You know, if you give the same number five times, then that must be the right one. So um, after they did that, they closed the trunk again, and they said, you know, if your PIN number doesn't work, we're going to come back and kill you. And I, I know that maybe sounds strange, but to me, that was kind of comforting, meaning they were leaving. And, um, you know, that that was good news at the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So here we are in the trunk, in, in the darkened trunk of our car, and didn't know how we were going to um, You know, there was no light. They had the keys to the car. car wasn't running. It was just pure black. And that's when um, I can only um, say there's no other explanation because this had to be divine intervention because, um, you know, engineering, there's no way there could have been a light in the trunk of that car. But I saw this little light where I, where I had pulled out all of those wires, and I said to my husband, I think I found the trunk release and, um, you know, that, that when you're in the car and you pull that lever and the trunk pops up, you know, that has to happen somewhere in the back of the trunk. But I wasn't thinking about that. Those words came out of my mouth. I think I found the trunk release, but I don't think they really came from my brain. So, um, I put my, put my husband's hands over me and he, I put his hands in the area where I saw a little light shining on a piece of metal and um so he feels around and you know he's mechanical he understands you know how this all works and he found the cable that is initiated when you are going to open the trunk from inside your vehicle and he pulled it and the trunk went Boop! It, i mean open it exactly like it would have if you were inside the vehicle mm-hmm. uh, so obviously i mean we pull vault out of that trunk trying to You know, figure out what's going on, where we are, and immediately run to the back seat, and there is no baby. Mm. There is no, there is no car seat. This car is empty. I mean, they took everything. And, you know, as, as a mom, as parents, you know, it had to be the lowest point in our entire lives. Mm So, but hope, hope against hope, we're thinking, all right, um, you know, maybe they took them out, or, or you know, or the other way is this. This thought came into my mind: is I think they're going to sell them for thirty thousand yeah. dollars. Now, why thirty thousand? I mean, it's just weird how things come into your mind. I must have seen that a program or something mm-hmm. where people um, go ahead and um, and pay thirty thousand dollars for or a baby that is available to sell, and I mean again, the blue-eyed, blonde-haired little boy. So that's what I thought, but um, but that didn't matter. All we cared about was you know our son had gone. So fortunately, um, we had in our vehicle something we didn't take. It was uh, stuck in the owner's manual, but it was this little plastic credit card type key. Mm-hmm. So we were able to start the car, it's a one-use type of um, device, and we were able to start the car and then try to figure out where we were and and how to get home. And I kept saying to my husband, um, you know, let's go home, let's go home. And he kept saying, no, 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 we got to call 911. I'm like, no, no, we're going to get in more trouble. And, you know, he kept insisting, and of course they had taken our cell phone. So um, we realized Pretty quickly that we're in the, um, the projects where we're not in a very safe area. And so we're kind of driving along and my husband wants to call 911 and uh, and I just want to go home. But finally we find a phone booth and, you know, he pulls in. I, I don't get out of the car because I'm so afraid. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then he calls 911. And all you know, he's not even on nine one one for a minute. And this other car pulls up, and four guys pull out, and they've got on a poncho show and grubby. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I knew we were going to get in more trouble. But the fact of the matter is, it's it was four undercover police officers. So mm-hmm. that kind of gives you a feel how dangerous that area is. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them like flashed their badge to me in the car and. You know, I didn't care what that badge because I wasn't going to get out of that car. But um, but my husband was still on the phone, still talking to nine one one. And then um, he he eventually came over and said, you know, don't worry, I'm talking to nine one one. They're sending an officer to our home, and they're going to send you know um, officers to us as well. So uh, you know, again, I guess to make the long story short, um. Finally, through nine one one, we found out that an officer who had been sent to our home uh, found our baby. Um, He was outside in his car seat, um, and and very fortunately, he was okay. And that um, you know that the officers that had shown up, the you know in uniform, that they would be dealing with the situation. And, um, you know, just the fact that we knew our our baby was alive and I guess you'd say in police custody, um, that things would be okay. And then, you know, you kind of just get caught in this whole mess and it all seems like a blur, but they were asking questions and, you know, they said that our car was a crime scene and... Mm -hmm they they wanted us to try to remember you know where we were taken and and i actually on our way down had written notes because i didn't know where we were and i didn't want to get lost so he, they did take us in the back of the police car back to where um where we were robbed and assaulted and i guess looking for clues or something but um then you know it seemed like hours it probably wasn't but then finally. Um, you know, they had to figure out who was going to get us home because we couldn't touch our car anymore. And eventually um, the police officers took this home. And when we pulled up to our home, there were police cars and lights and um, the garage door was open. And all I could see was that there was a police officer holding our son, Alex. And he was like right under the light of the garage. And he was playing with the officers like walkie-talkie. And, you know, he had his little Halloween outfit on and one sock on and one sock off. And, you know, as a mother, all I wanted to do was grab him and, um, you know, really know that he's okay. And I tried to get out of the police car and I couldn't get out. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's when I literally lost it. I'm like, let me out of here. I had not put in a police car. I, I didn't know like they had, I mean, I guess I knew they had these locks and things, <laughs> but I they needed to lock me in. I wasn't a criminal, yeah. but it took a little while. They were able, you know, they just just hold on. I go, no, I don't want to. Lock. So eventually, I was able to get out, and you know, of course, ran towards my son. I took him, and you know, um, went upstairs to our home, um, went into his room, and this rocker. And in my mind, I was never going to leave that space.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He was safe. He was in my arms. We all were relatively unharmed, but obviously that's not the way it ended up.
1: Well, that's, it's kind of maybe, uh, maybe it is ironic that you ended up being stuck in the back of a car worrying about, you know, trying to get reconnect with your son. Because this then, uh, this led to you, uh, advocating for trunk releases, which I have one in my car. I realize now after speaking to you. Yeah, that all the like all the American cars now have trunk releases because of your advocacy?
0: Yes, after this terrible, terrible situation that happened to me and my family, I said, this doesn't make sense. I mean, how can you put somebody in their own trunk of their own vehicle and they can't get out? Mm-hmm. Um, what happened that, that night, I remember one of the officers saying to me, um, after everything was okay, you know, it never ends this way. And I'm like, mm. well, what do you mean? And they said, when you look at the number of things you've gone through and another number of steps, um, people don't usually just walk away from something like mm. this. And that piqued my curiosity. Well, how does it end? Mm-hmm. And, and to make a long story really short, we we found out there wasn't any data mm-hmm. on um, trunk entrapment incidents. Um, no one had ever studied the issue. So you know, that's kind of even before Google and I started to do searches and figured out how many times people do get locked in trunks. And the only way you could get in my database is you had to be alive before you could get into that trunk. So I I didn't, you know, look at cases where there was some um, situation where someone was dead and then they were, um, you know, taken to another location. So found the data and then worked very hard. It took a couple of years, but talk to anyone who would talk to me, and um, the result ended up as, as very good news, is we were able to um, pass a regulation such that any vehicle, and and I know earlier you said um, um, American-made, but it doesn't matter where on okay. earth the vehicle is made, but if it's sold, or least in the United States, it will come okay. with a throw-in-the-dark trunk release. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if it's, a, if it's a Mercedes or a Toyota or a GM or a Ford, um, any vehicles that have been sold in the United States or leased from 2002 on will have a, a glow-in-the-dark internal trunk release. But the very, very best um, information about this entire story is that we have not been able to document one fatality in the trunk of a car that has that release so um you know obviously we had to go through some hard times and it was um almost an impossible task to try to um, make this happen but we did and none of that matters because the best news is people are no longer dying in trunks of cars because they have a way to get help
1: so that uh, incredible, that incredible success, then, because uh, I I know it must have been quite a challenge to collect data when there is not a governmental or academic service basically doing it for just a person to do that. That must have been a monumental uh, task to do, and uh, uh, that's ultimately because you became. A data collection individual, you got involved in, uh, information about children dying, uh, by being left in their vehicles, uh, in hot cars that they could not leave. And just, uh, what in, what interested me in this story, I, I saw a documentary film about it, that there have been, uh, hundreds of deaths in, uh, since 1990 or so of children essentially being uh, forgotten about, I'll put it that way, or their 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 parents don't realize that they're in the vehicle, and die of uh, heat stroke or things similar to that. Dr. Diamond's on here, we're going to talk a little bit more, but these deaths are a surprisingly common thing because of uh, not traffic accidents, not other things, but but children being left inside the vehicle, and you start and you started your work on kids and cars. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. It, I think it's really important because so many people do understand that uh, motor vehicle crashes are the number one killer of mm-hmm. people between ages one and sixty-four, mm-hmm. and it's you know such a significant public health issue. But what they don't realize is to get in that database, number one, you have to be involved in a crash, number two, it has to happen on a public road or highway, and number three, you die within 30 days of that incident. Mm-hmm. So that's the criteria to get into that thirty-six to 40,000 fatalities that happen every year. Well, because of that criteria, that's how, Tom, for instance, there, there wasn't information about trunk entrapment mm-hmm. because usually happens in a in a driveway or you know somewhere where you're not obviously you're not driving because you couldn't put somebody in there and things like children being left in hot cars or children being backed over um, you know those type of incidents and we call them non-traffic incidents Mm -hmm. and uh, we actually were able after several more years to get, um, as they say, an act of Congress passed such that now our government does have to collect data about things that happen off the public road or highway. So, um, you know, through the data collection process, I was able to show, um, you know, not only members of Congress, but, you know, the the federal government, that this was indeed a, a very significant issue In fact, in their first report for things um, that they put on that happened off the public motor highway, it was over 1,700 fatalities, Mm. but 840,000 trips to the emergency room every year. Mm -hmm. And it's like the, the, just the tip of the, so this is not a problem, you know, that is insignificant. Mm -hmm. My long-term goal is to have the government put together this database and not have it separate, because it shouldn't matter where you get hurt by a vehicle. It should really just matter that the interaction between human and a vehicle caused serious harm and, and of course, death.
1: Yeah. Yeah, har- uh, hardly <laughs> insignificant. So um, you and... Uh, And also Dr. Diamond, who is here, both, uh, appeared in, uh, the film I saw recently, Fatal Distraction, about the, uh, Justin Ross Harris case, where, um, he had left the child in the car and then was, was convicted, which we'll speak about a little bit more. But these, uh, incidents of, uh, children dying in hot cars, uh, it seemed to surprise people quite a bit, the prevalence of it, and that it could ever happen at all. Um, and so I, I've got both of you here. Dr. Diamond, welcome. For, thank you for coming. Uh, thank you, Timothy, for inviting me. No problem. So uh, really, uh, either one of you, uh, the, I guess the big question that someone that has not heard about this is how could such a thing happen? How could parents forget about their child uh, in a car and uh, have an incident like this occur. And just tell me, uh, uh, tell me, Dr. Diamond, if you want to go first, what's your opinion on that? I know you've testified in court and you can tell us what your thoughts on it are.
2: Yeah. As I was listening to Jeanette uh, tell her story, which I've heard before, I realized there was a strange twist of a considered ironic or coincidence that uh, Jeanette's harrowing experience led her to look at statistics on people dying in cars, which led her, I assume, then, to have kidsincars.org, um, which was instrumental for me, um, and I'm greatly indebted to Jeanette and her group of kidsandcars.org, because it was 15 years ago that I was first approached as a memory expert to explain how children are forgotten in cars someone from the media has called me out of the blue and said, children are dying in hot cars because parents are forgetting them. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And frankly, my initial reaction was, you can forget lots of things, you just don't forget kids in cars. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wasn't really of much benefit to that uh, reporter. And I would say one of the first things that I did was to find this site, kidsincars.org, and see the wealth of information that was available to see even at that time, hundreds of children had died in hot cars. And so that actually helped me because now I'm looking at, uh, and for 15 years, I've been looking at the science of how it is people make uh, catastrophic memory failures. And, and it goes beyond forgetting children in cars. We have pilots that forget to set the flaps properly and planes crash. We have police officers who forget their guns in public bathrooms. Potentially, a a child now finds the gun and and, where someone can cause harm. So the first assumption we make is that we forget lots of things, but um, it should never lead to a catastrophe. And it turns out that assumption is is wrong. So um, the one thing I want to emphasize is that we have lots of really good parents who have all the best of intentions for their children, never to cause harm. And these very good parents are very capable of losing awareness of their child in a car. And this is the bottom line as to how these children are, are forgotten. We use the word forgotten. The real problem is it's not of trivializes it, because people mm-hmm. will immediately say, well, how do you forget that you have a child? And it's not that people forget that they have a child. And this is part of the tragedy. These people will go to work. And they will talk about their child. They'll see a picture of their child on the desk. And at the end of the day, they'll say, I have to leave work now to go pick up my child at daycare, obviously showing normal care for their child. And yet, the child has spent the entire day in the car and has died as a result of heat stroke. Mm -hmm. So this is the challenge we have to understand how it is that good parents lose awareness of their children
1: and the children die in the hot cars. Mm -hmm. So in some of these cases, then... Uh, the the parents have actually talked about their children being at daycare. Uh, And and so the the mind, uh, for lack of a better term, is almost making up a story to fill in the memory gaps.
2: So I've published work on this, and there's rather extensive literature that shows that when you assume something happened, you actually create a false memory that it actually did happen. Mm-hmm. So, this has been studied under laboratory control conditions um, with people. It's been studied in people under stress. And so, what appears to happen is that when people have the intention to take their child to daycare and then they arrive at work, the brain sort of fills in that gap. The brain creates this false memory that, well, you're at work you must have dropped your child off at daycare. Mm-hmm. And that is why people can spend the entire day at work feeling absolutely certain that they accomplished the goal, which was that they took their child to daycare. Um, this is this false memory that the brain creates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of the problem. Um, and again, the the we related to other catastrophes. The pilot that takes off without the flaps set mm-hmm. properly isn't thinking, oh, I didn't set the flash properly. They actually sort of have a memory, the false memory, Mm -hmm. that they have done everything appropriate for a proper takeoff. Mm -hmm. And and this is where I think it's really important that people think, well, you can forget your keys, you can forget lots of things, but you don't forget your child in the car and you don't forget the gun in the bathroom. And that actually makes people complacent. Mm -hmm. This makes people say, I'm a good parent. I would never forget my child in a car. It's only bad parents Mm -hmm. I forget children in cars. And what I try to convince people of, and my job has been to convince juries that that's not correct. Mm -hmm. That as humans we are capable of making catastrophic memory errors. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I worked at a hospital before and a a friend of mine who uh, was a psychologist and he he was blind. He uh, had really no vision at all but he, he was a really good psychologist. He asked me to To take him to work one day and then of course he said you know you have to give me a ride back and I'm a forgetful person and I thought about well maybe I should read myself a note that I'm going to make sure I take him and give him a ride home. Uh, I took him to work and said I'm not going to forget about my friend uh, one of the psychologists that works here although he's in another building and guess what happened? I just went home. And uh, and then if, if like he had to call his wife and she came, I was so embarrassed by that. And I couldn't at the time, I couldn't believe. Like oh, I need to actually write a note to remember my own friend. So the the emotional uh, closeness and significance might actually work against us in that we're not going to make the precautions we would to make sure our memory serves our interests. Well, what
2: you're describing is called prospective memory. Mm-hmm. Psychologists call this prospective memory in which we say to ourselves, I need to do something in the future,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: I re- need to remember to do this in the future, mm-hmm. whether it's remembering later today you need to call someone, you have a doctor's appointment, and I've done the very same thing. Uh, I was supposed to bring someone home once, and I completely lost awareness as well, mm-hmm. Um this is means it's remembering to remember, mm-hmm. and this is something that happens routinely, and that's why we say to ourselves, I need to write a note, and there's sort of an absurdity in which someone would say, do I need to write a note to myself and stick it on my steering wheel that my child is in the back seat, and that's why it's so difficult to do that because you're accepting responsibility for the possibility that you could forget your child. Mm -hmm. And so I can imagine you in that situation. You could say to yourself, I should write myself a note, but there's another side of you that said, well, how is it possible I could forget my son? Mm -hmm. It's not possible, therefore I won't forget. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing that happens constantly in which you say to yourself, there's no way I would forget to do this, and yet we do forget. Mm -hmm. So there is a category of memory that routinely fails. And that category is prospective memory. And it could be something as benign and trivial but consequential as, on my way home, I want to stop at the store to pick up groceries. And, of course, you drive right past the store and you get home and you don't have your groceries. You could amplify that to be a bit more important. On the way home, I need to stop at the pharmacy for medication. And you get home and you don't have the medication. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether it's or just – I put the keys, I put uh, a cup of soda. This happens often. I actually saw this. You put a cup of soda on the roof of your car as you get the keys out of your pocket. And then you get in your car and you drive away and the soda spills on your windshield. And this is actually very important to understand. From the most benign and trivial to the most catastrophic, it's the same kind of memory, the same brain structures. So it's mm-hmm. that prospective memory. And what's really important is that memory still exists in your brain. Mm-hmm. Because I ask people, when that soda spills on your windshield, you're not completely baffled as to how this black fluid has hit your windshield. You mm-hmm. Remember that the soda was used to be on your roof and you forgot to bring it in. So in the same way, when people get a reminder that their child is in the car, all of a sudden, that memory floods back. Mm-hmm. The real memory floods back. And so that memory is sort of idling in our subconscious. hmm And Mm -hmm. at the right cue, this is why Jeanette and I and others have advocated for a cue. We need technology to give us a reminder that there is a living being in the car. Mm -hmm. Frankly, most important is there's a child still in the car. Um, But keep in mind, dogs are left in cars too. Mm -hmm. We forget children, we forget dogs, and they both die of heat stroke. We need a reminder which resets our brains Mm -hmm. to reactivate that memory to say you lost awareness of the child in the car. Mm -hmm. And immediately when you hear that cue go off, well, then you'll realize the child's in the car. And it is the same reason why we have a cue that goes off when we exit the car, which in the older cars, it says your headlights are on. Yeah. I mean, how many times do we drive during the day? This has happened to me and it starts to rain, so I'll manually put on my headlights. And I get to my destination, and I'm ready to leave the car, yeah. and my headlights are yeah. still on. This is why our headlights either have a reminder or they automatically go off. If mm-hmm. a battery go dead if you leave it, the headlights on. It, it's obvious. That, again, is prospective memory. You need to remember that you put your headlights on. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately, to me, the critical way to address this human problem is to have a cue that reminds you, that reactivates that memory that your child is in the
1: car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Jeanette, you can uh, come in on this if you want, but what do you think the significance has been where they changed the, the rules, they changed the law where the children, are not supposed to be in the front seat of the vehicle uh, they're supposed to be in the back seat, and that was for safety reasons because of airbag deployment could injure the child. So instead of, instead of the parent choosing where the child is, now it's mandated they're in the back seat and they're facing, they're facing toward the back of the vehicle. That stimulus change, how do you think that has impacted uh, these accidental deaths?
0: Well, it's a huge impact. And in, in fact, um, on our website, we have a great chart. And what we've plotted on that chart is from 1990 till, you know, last year. And it shows, like, how many children have died from an overpowered airbag. But then um, it also plots how many children have died in hot cars. Mm-hmm. And back during that time period, um, this just is so, so significant um 186 children have died from overpowered airbags and that's more in the mid to late 90s and basically we've eradicated that because all the kids are in the back seat and it's raw and like you said we're facing but at that same time over 990 children have died in hot cars why is there not that same outrage when children were being killed by airbags this just baffles the imagination and, I mean, we just really couldn't figure out, um you know, how this could be, you know, until we found Dr. Diamond, because it, it just, it, these are loving, caring. These are the best parents that this happens to in almost all the cases. They have every safety device imaginable to man, and their houses have been, you know, locked down. And, you know, we couldn't figure out what this was about. And so he's really unlocked the answer to what this is, and you know, it's just humans being human. And, you know, I like the analogy he uses about the um, headlights. You can't buy a car today that doesn't tell you either you've left your headlights on or it automatically turns the headlights off for you. Mm -hmm. Because God forbid we'd have a dead car battery. But Let's just step back a a bit, and I don't want this to sound sensational in any, any way, but who decided it's more important not to have a dead car battery than a dead baby? Mm-hmm. And it's just a fact. Mm-hmm. So we are working and working and working to try to get the technology added to vehicles that can prevent these totally predictable, totally preventable tragedies. And and that is with the bill that um, we're working on called the Hot Cars Act. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I was I got an interest in this because of uh, a documentary called "Stop All Clocks" about uh, her name was Haley Wesley, who uh, had left her child in a uh, in a vehicle, um, so pretty much as we have described, um, and I and she faced criminal charges. For that incident, she was uh, prosecuted. I think it was for manslaughter. And then uh, another documentary uh, that is called "Fatal Distraction," which Jeanette introduced me for about Justin Ross Harris. So, and he was prosecuted, uh, convicted, and given a life <laughs> sentence. So I I'm curious about how prosecutors are reacting to cases like this. And in addition, maybe, Dr. Diamond, you could tell us how uh, the justice system, how juries have reacted to some of the testimony that you've given in cases like this.
2: Well, first, um, it's a bit capricious as to how uh, prosecutors respond to these cases. You can even have it in adjacent counties, one prosecutor will look at a case and acknowledge that it's human error and there are no charges filed. And in in adjacent county, you have a prosecutor that will say, well, we know it's an accident, unintentional, but still we're going to charge with manslaughter. Mm -hmm. And you can have another that will charge the parent with murder. So it's just entirely up to the DA, the prosecutor, at their whim and perhaps their knowledge of this situation as to how they want to charge an individual. Um, And that, I think, is part of the problem. Uh, My role as um, an expert witness has been to take the jurors from initially feeling indignation to feeling strong judgment against the parent to explain to them how we make these kind of memory failures as I just mentioned before from benign to catastrophic and um, basically the brain substrates that are involved in prospective memory how they compete against each other when we do something out of habit it actually seems to suppress our awareness of our intention. Um, So often, the reason why we forget to do something in the future is because we're engaged in something out of habit, and we actually have competition between these different brain memory systems. Um, And so far, the feedback I've gotten from jurors is that I've been able to um, explain this pretty effectively. I also share um, my own personal experience, um, which I'll, I'll share with you now. Um, a bit over a decade ago, uh, I was driving with my newborn grandchild and it was for the first time. And my wife and I were doing something out of habit. We had never driven with our grandchild, uh, without her mother before.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And, um, we arrived at a, at a shopping center as we had hundreds of times before without anyone in the backseat. And I got out of the car and I was ready to go. Um, my wife said to me, are you forgetting something? And I had no idea what she was talking about. I am pretty forgetful. Mm -hmm. She's often asking me what I've forgotten. uh, But I really had no idea what she was talking about. She said, what about the baby? And then in that moment, I could relate to the loss of awareness that these parents experienced as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is something I share with uh, the jurors to try to help them to connect with uh, not only the, the memory failure, but also the pain and suffering that the parent is going through as
1: well. You, you mentioned, uh, like, a, this was a, maybe the first time you've ridden with uh, your granddaughter without the parent uh, there. So what is the significance of, uh, I've heard of many of these cases of something is different, like they're driving a different car, or there's been some kind of a change in the routine. How does that affect the memory and make an incident like this more likely?
2: Well, I think the best way to think about it is, something is very much the same, Mm -hmm. which is the person is going through a routine. And the one thing that's different is that they're with their child. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the routine could be typically the parent is driving to work. And that parent has done that hundreds, maybe even thousands of times, uh, with or without the child. And so on a particular day, let's say the other parent typically brings the child to daycare, But on this day, that parent can't take the child. Uh So now the other parent says, okay, that's fine. I'll bring our child to daycare on the way to work.
1: Uh
2: And the important thing is the brain has this habit system that takes you directly from home to work.
1: Uh
2: Um, and, And just as a matter of perspective, sometimes people can ask you, well, give me the directions to how you get from point A to point B. And it can be difficult for you to consciously tell the person street by street how you get somewhere. Because you can almost do it automatically. Mm -hmm. So the parent that normally would drive straight from home to work now has to remember during the drive, oh, today is different. I need to stop my normal route and take my child to daycare and then continue on to work. And the real problem is we have this powerful habit-based system that then suppresses this conscious memory system, the prospective memory. And as you're driving right by, you can go right by daycare and you lose awareness of the plan to go to daycare and you go straight to work. This is exactly what happened with Justin Ross Harris. Mm -hmm. So he typically would stop. If you don't mind getting into the details because I studied it. He would go from home to Chick-fil-A almost every day. And he would stop there and pick up his lunch. And so that day... Out of the ordinary, he stopped there with his child. But what he had done hundreds of times before was that he would leave Chick-fil-A and go straight to work. And what he had to remember that day was after leaving Chick-fil-A, don't drive straight to work. You need to stop your route, take your child to daycare, and then continue on to work. And that's what had this combination of habit and something different that day. So his habit system took him straight from Chick-fil-A to work, and he lost awareness of his child in the car. Mm -hmm. Now what I'll add to that, and what people find frankly infuriating and they don't understand, is that this loss of awareness can happen extremely quickly in -hmm. a matter of seconds. And so as he was getting onto the street, in which he actually had to fight traffic and make a U-turn and then go to work, it's that quickly that you can lose awareness. And whether we're talking about something trivial, which is a cup of stone on the roof, mm-hmm. or something incredibly important beyond belief, which is a child in your car, you lose awareness of that in a moment. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was only a, a couple of minutes from the time that he started his car until he lost awareness and drove straight to work. That's all it took for him to lose awareness of his child in the
1: car. Mm -hmm. Um, What is the importance of uh, brain anatomy, our understanding of the anatomy of the brain in these kind of cases?
2: So when you talk about these kind of cases, again, I get back to the basic anatomy that we know of, Mm of. Again, what I'm saying is prospective memory. We have a brain system that is really our conscious level. We think about it. You were thinking, I need to bring my friend, the psychologist, with me when I leave work. There's a conscious memory system which involves two brain structures called the frontal cortex and the hippocampus. We use that to make plans for the future. And it's holding on to that information, but very tenuously. We have a completely separate brain structure called the basal ganglia. The basal ganglia is something we do out of habit. It operates at a subconscious level. So, for example, when you're training in sports... And you just train over and over and over. The coach says, you know, you just got to keep it doing over and over. So when you're actually in the competition, you don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. That way you hit a tennis ball correctly without thinking about it. And that's mm-hmm. your basal ganglia. It operates at a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. When you drive to work, you think about a typical day when you drive to work. You don't remember anything that happened during that drive. Mm-hmm. And the reason being that your basal ganglia is basically getting you from home to work. And if nothing of consequence happens, you have no memory of anything that happened during that drive. Because your hippocampus and prefrontal cortex basically are sort of idling. So your basal ganglia is really powerful. That is the habit structure that takes over, that gets you from point A to point B on something you've done hundreds or thousands of times. Not only does it get its job done, but in the process it's actually suppressing. We you know from brain imaging studies, it is suppressing the hippocampus and frontal cortex to get its job done.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so this is what people sort of need to understand. I mean, there's so many times, think about it. This has happened. It's a Saturday. I have no intention to go to work. And yet, as I'm driving to go somewhere else, I actually take the exit off the freeway to go to work. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself, why did I do that? Well, because my basal ganglia has directed me to go that way. Mm-hmm. That's how powerful this brain memory system is. Mm-hmm. So we need to think about, are these different brain memory systems they compete against each other. Mm-hmm. Hippocampus is trying to consciously say, no, today I've got to take my child to work. Today I've got to take my psychologist friend home. But your basal ganglia is saying, no, I'm going to take you from point A to B, mm-hmm. and I'm going to suppress your conscious memory system. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, as a, as a behavior analyst, I, I this kind of discussion makes me think of, when you are training someone or, or any living thing, in a chain analysis, let's say you're training someone to do the laundry and they bring the laundry and maybe they'll, step two, maybe they'll separate the light colored clothes from the dark clothes and then open the laundry, the washing machine, you know, step four, put in uh, put in the laundry detergent. The person, if they're under stress or they haven't learned the chain well enough or there's a set of circumstances that could interfere with like they're not doing laundry at home, they're doing laundry at a laundry mat, say for example, they can skip parts of the chain. They could do one, two, three, and then start in at five, and not even realize that they've skipped. Unless you develop that chain in such a way that they're linked together, you can't go from one step to the other. And that's what I think of in these kind of cases: that they they have a typical chain, but at any point you can get off that chain and go to something else, and that's where the danger. That's a more of a behavior analytic view of it because you have to make it so that they follow the complete set of tasks.
2: Well, let me elaborate on that, because I think that's a great illustration. First, um, decades ago, what we had were plane crashes in which the pilots were supposed to go through this chain, which included setting flaps properly, and that's why you actually had some devastating plane Mm. crashes. And that's why you have the pilot literally will go through the steps on paper. And not only that, you have technology that, Alert stem in, in case the flaps aren't set properly. Mm-hmm. So that's why you don't have plane crashes anymore in which flaps aren't set properly. But let me elaborate on your example. Let's say someone has this chain all set up, and they know exactly what to do when they're doing the laundry. But let's give this prospective memory an example. So let's say you're in one part of the house, and you have every intention on your way to the laundry room to pick up some socks that you know are in the kitchen. So from the time you leave the bedroom, in which you have the memory that I want to pick up my socks and then go to the laundry room, well, you got other things on your mind. Mm-hmm. So as you leave the bedroom, now you're walking the hallway and you've lost awareness mm-hmm. of your plan to pick up the socks. Mm-hmm. So you go all the way to the laundry room, you do your laundry, and now you leave and you look at the socks.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And again, this is a failure of prospective memory, and you realize I meant to pick up socks along the way, but I lost awareness. I forgot. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of memory failure that happens all the time, Mm -hmm. whether it's as trivial as remembering the socks or as potentially catastrophic as remembering a child in a car. So the way to think about this is your habit memory gets you to do things without thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So your chain of behaviors will ultimately be done without you thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And that's really convenient. That's actually the beauty of the basal ganglia is, for example, it lets you drive your car. You don't have to think about where the gas and the brakes are. You don't have to think about how to start the car. You don't have to really think about where you're going. It allows you that convenience to actually have a conversation with people in the car without thinking about where you're going. You plan what you're going to do tomorrow and in your retirement. It allows you the freedom to do all this cognitive processing while you're also doing something out of habit. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But in the process, you lose awareness of what your plan was during that drive.
1: Um. Yeah, Doctor Diamond, that is uh, really uh, that uh, that explanation. I think would be critical for people understanding the difference between um, what is portrayed in some of these cases and uh, how the mi- how the I almost said the mind, but how the brain is actually working. Now, now we said uh, we asked you for a half an hour, and we've gone a little bit beyond that. If you can stay with us, uh, if you have to go, that's okay, but if you can stay with us, I would like you and both Jeanette to talk uh, about the uh, Justin Ross Harris case and maybe your own uh, involvement in that, and you can just start wherever you want to because it is a fascinating story.
0: Well, one thing, if I could, um, I'd love if Dr. Diamond would just take a a couple of minutes and explain how lack of sleep, stress... Mm -hmm. Changing routine, how those things affect, you know, our, our especially our prospective memory because that's important. Anyone um, who has a child who is um, two and under, they know. You, I mean, you cannot plan maybe that you'll get to a good night's sleep, and and that's another factor. That I think is very important, mm-hmm. and um, people with young children need to understand this.
2: Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Jeanette. So. There, we have just decades of research, and part of my research is a study how stress affects the brain. Um, and what is absolutely clear is that when we are stressed, we have reduced functioning of our hippocampus and frontal cortex. And these are the conscious parts of our mind, of our brain. Um, you think about it, no matter how stressed you are, no matter how sleep-deprived you are, if you've driven to work a thousand times you'll be able to get there without thinking about it. And our basal ganglia, basically this is our habit system, will function just fine whether we're sleep-deprived or stressed. And in fact, it appears to even be enhanced. Be enhanced. It's more likely then to be able to suppress the hippocampus and the frontal cortex if we've been sleep-deprived um, or stressed. So uh, what we have is acute stress. We have some cases in which during the drive, the... The parent has had a stressful experience. And what we know is that the stress makes the hippocampus and frontal cortex focus on the stress itself. And when that happens, it loses awareness of other things that it was processing. I often talk about test anxiety with people. What happens is people build up so much anxiety about failing the exam that their brain is totally focused on the anxiety and when that happens, you lose awareness, you lose the ability to retrieve the answers to the exam. Because our hippocampus thinks that we're under attack. So the way to think about stress is that our brain interprets that to mean there's a predator out there that we're about to die. Mm-hmm. It doesn't know that we're stressed and we can't pay the bills um, or that we've got something else going on during the day. It thinks there's actually an attack going on. And so the total focus goes on the stress itself. Mm-hmm. So that not only changes the way that hippocampus processes memory, it impairs its ability to process memory. The basal ganglia is just floating right along and doing its job. It doesn't care that your stress is going to get you from point A to point B. So you want to relate this to the Justin Ross Harris case, um, and I did research on that case. What you have is that um, the night before, he was actually up quite late. He had um, a lot of pressure to get a job done. He was the lead web developer for Home Depot, and there was a project that was keeping him up at night. So we know that he had a good bit less sleep because there are records of him sending emails out about this project. Uh, Ironically, he was also up late at night um, looking into applying for a passport for his son at about one in the morning, which normally he'd be asleep at that time, um, because they were looking to go on a cruise, the whole family. Um, so this lack of sleep that is just typical of parents with young children um, is seen in these cases routinely. And that lack of sleep interferes with hippocampus and frontal cortex functioning. and makes it more likely you'll do something um, as a matter of habit. Oh, and I'll also add, there's actually a survey on this. And any parent that, of a young child kind of knows this. Uh, but the survey actually showed that about a quarter of all parents of young children at some point have lost awareness, have mm-hmm. forgotten their children are in cars. And I really wanna emphasize, the question is why is it 25% of all children aren't actually forgotten? There are so many ways in a sense in which children are saved. I've heard of so many parents that have held, sort of had this horrific memory that when they exited their car, they happen to hear their child make a sound Uh and suddenly they realize oh my my child's in the car or they happen to reach in the back to get something out and they discover their child's in the car or they happen to park in a covered location out of the sun or it wasn't warm enough for the car to heat up and they discover their child at the end of the day but the car was cool enough that the child didn't die so realize just the vast majority of cases in which during the drive a child is forgotten. Fortunately, most of the time there is something that triggers the memory in the parents, so the child isn't actually left in the car, or it's not hazardous to the child.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I was, yeah, I was going to ask—is there? Uh, you answer that—the data about close calls. Um, yeah, uh, it sounds like it's—it's it's a fairly frequent thing. Then um, it
2: just there are so many parents that have contacted me um, that I've learned about that have had these close calls there is so often another person in the car that is aware that there's a child in the car. And that's my experience. Had I been alone, um, the outcome might've been catastrophic uh, Mm -hmm. when I lost awareness of my grandchild. Um, And so we have reports. of And now, unfortunately there are many times in which everyone in the car has lost awareness of the child. And I've been involved in many of those cases in which you have a parent and when I'm thinking about in which there is an older child in the front, two younger children in the back, and all four people lost awareness of the infant that was sleeping in the car, and all all of them got out of the car and forgot about the child. Mm-hmm. So this this can be very common that people lose awareness of children in the cars. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Jeanette, had you had? Uh um, involvement or assistance with the Justin Ross Harris case yourself, or uh, uh, had you uh, you you were the one that kind of mentioned that to me? What's been your experience with the case?
0: Well, uh, we have followed it very very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Diamond is obviously closer because he's he's actually studied everything. But um, you know, from our look at it. And, you know, trust me, we see thousands and thousands of these cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mentioned 990 deaths, but there's thousands and thousands of what we'd call near misses. And there's certainly cases that are have serious injuries, mm-hmm. meaning they found the child, the child's alive, but, you know, disabled forever. Mm-hmm. The situation with um, Justin Ross Harris really sticks out for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. We have never had a case of a child dying in a hot car that received that sentence. Um, There are definitely some things that have to do with this case. Um, He did have a problem with a sex addiction and, you know, there's other issues that came to light, but from following it as closely as we have, there certainly is some very serious problems in the way it was prosecuted, and you know th- things that were brought to trial. And you know, let's start with the fact that after his son died, they put him in prison. Mm-hmm. It wasn't you know do the investigation and then see what we find. they decided that day afternoon that he was guilty
1: mm-hmm.
0: so they did everything you know as this case wound really from this point that he was guilty mm-hmm. and um, you know we know his wife we've you know we worked on this for a long time but in my mind I don't see that there was anything that this uh, man did intentionally that caused the lives of that child. And it, it's a terrible, terrible situation, and it happens a lot in these cases, um, why they're immediately looked at as a crime. Mm-hmm. And you know, when we start as a society, deciding uh, fault in our memory always is a crime, I think we're gonna be in real trouble. But that is what's happening in these situations. What did you well, let me uh, go ahead. Doctor.
2: So I follow this case very closely. And it's it's clearly the extenuating circumstances on the day he forgot his child, the the sex addiction you're talking about, the acts that were considered immoral, um, the tainting, the incorrect analysis that the detectives used that I think very much influenced the outcome of this case. They decided that the act uh, of leaving a child in the car was intentional. That's why he was charged with mm-hmm. murder. Um, they, I believe, misrepresented uh, what they saw on video in which he went back to, the, to his car during that day. Um, the detective testified under oath that he saw Ross Harris look into the car Um, in which he must have seen his child, and clearly the video shows he did not look into his car. Uh, I think that was one thing that was incorrect. There was a strange thing that Leanne said to him um, that day, which was, did you say too much? And that's rather ambiguous. What does that mean, did you say too much? Almost as if they were complicit in planning this. But I got to know Ross and I realized he's quite loquacious. Um, Ross doesn't seem to stop talking uh, when you're talking with him. And so he has a tendency to run on and on and on and talk. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what she was referring to, that he probably said something that misled the police to believe it was intentional. Um, and I also, I just believe the jury was strongly influenced. By the immoral actions that they that the prosecutors had shown to them, some of which was considered offensive, and I just believe the jury wanted to punish them mm-hmm. for those actions.
1: Well, when we were speaking earlier about uh, a person would tell themselves, "Oh, I, I'd never do that," or "I, you know, uh, I care about my child enough. I'm not going to forget about my child." That this the public reaction to this case was. Was a, a kind of an expanded form of that. It's the people in the public hearing about uh, the Harris case and saying, "I would never do that," uh, and there must be something more to it. If, uh, if because you cannot, it's not possible to forget about your child. So there must be something more to it, and it easily led well, to well, that conclusion.
2: Uh, allow me to, to interrupt, though. The initial response to the news about Ross Harris was sympathetic. Mm -hmm. I think it was only when his personal issues Mm -hmm. became public that people turned against him. I think often people do initially just kind of wonder how it's possible a good parent can forget a child in a car. And I think people were going in that direction with Ross Harris, but they were not willing to forgive him for the immoral behavior that he had. And I, I just think that had a huge effect on the way people were thinking
1: about this. What do you think about the media coverage uh, of that of that case? I, I have seen some of those clips, but uh, it reminded me we had a we had an earlier podcast about what we called crime exploitation, about the media coverage of criminal cases, sometimes in a very negative way, uh, not a very productive way, in my opinion. Um, and it reminded me of that. So that just the major media corporations covering this case. What did you think of that?
2: Well, it was mixed. You clearly had very sensational media coverage. Um, I watched on the news in which people were angry. They're talking about how clearly he wanted to kill his child. He wanted to leave his wife. Um, very judgmental, very harsh. Um, and you see the public with the vitriolic kind of comments people have about this. But, you know, there was also some good coverage of the case um, Gene Weingarten had some good coverage. There's also some good local coverage from out of Atlanta. So I think the coverage was a bit mixed in either extreme. Um, But yes, for sensational coverage of this case, again, because of the uh, extracurricular activity, he had Mm -hmm. sort of really tainted anyone's um, sympathy for him. Mm -hmm. There was also the other factor which people have a hard time understanding, and again, which we bring out, which was, It was only a couple of minutes from the time he put his child into the car seat until he arrived at work. And so there's this universal feeling, which is, it's just not possible to forget a child that quickly. And that's to which I respond, yes, it is. Mm -hmm.
1: Jeanette, what's kind of your response to how the the, uh, Justin Ross Harris case was covered and, and from what you know about it?
0: Well, I would say it's probably one of the most um, most covered of, of any case that we've dealt with. There's been some high-profile situations, but I, I don't think anything you know really comes comes close to that. Um, it, it also seems like because there was such bad information put out at the beginning. Um, And it's never been corrected. And people don't go back afterwards to, you know, to find out what really happened. So that sticks with people. Um, You know, they were saying, for instance, that he had searched on his computer for a childless Mm -hmm. life. Well, someone sent him something about childless life. And his response was, oh, gross. Okay. You know, that's quite the opposite of saying someone was looking for that. So there were these nuggets that went out at the beginning that weren't true, but because they kept being repeated and repeated, people did think they were true. And of course, you know, people don't change their mind or take time to find out, you know, did that really happen? So there was a lot of prejudice with that. And and I would say in general, this is one of the most difficult things we, we deal with. And, you know, thank goodness for Dr. Diamond. But people don't understand how this can happen. And what we try to empathize with um, the public and with parents is the worst mistake you can ever make is to think that this can't happen to you. And, and people like to do it because it's such a terrible thought that you might lose your child or you might be the one responsible for the death of your child. And it doctors out of the people this happens to. And by making monsters of these people, they say, Well, I'm not a monster. You know, I'm a good parent. So this won't happen to me because I'm not a monster. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, um, subtlety to that. But we do find that all the time. And, and people are judgmental, very mean, and they don't understand, unfortunately, how human this is. And, like I, I like I just said, the biggest mistake anyone can ever make is to think it can't happen to them. No one no one's brain is infallible.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah let me add I, I thank you Jeanette, for bringing up um, that bit um, of incorrect information about his computer activity. What the uh, authorities also brought out which was incorrect, was stating that he had searched um, for information about how long an animal, Needed to be in a car, hot car, before it would die, uh, which was completely incorrect and insufficiently brought out in the testimony that he did not search for how long a dog would need to remain in a car. That was just a pop up that happened to show up on his screen. And it was a public service announcement by a veterinarian um, about not leaving animals in cars. Uh, But they twisted that to make it appear as if he was strategizing. How long do I need to leave my child in the car to be sure that he would would die? And that was again how they influenced the public and influenced um, the jury. And it simply wasn't correct.
1: Yeah, I was going to bring that up that they never even, it was just, uh, they'd never even proven that he'd looked at these videos. They just, they just said that they found it in a feed and said that he looked at it. So that, that really surprised me that that could happen in a court case, but it did.
0: Right. You know, another thing that I think is is notable is he ruined the life of his wife. Mm -hmm. I mean, he took their child away. Um, This was such a huge sensation all over the world. All right. But she knew in her heart that he was a very good father. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she could have, you know, taken any stance on this. But when she was put on the stand, she was not going to lie. She was not going to, you know, say probably what people wanted her to say. And she knew he loved that little boy beyond thing on earth. And someone whose life has changed and ruined yeah, you know, forever in taking her precious little baby boy, she did let the world know that was not his intention.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, this is uh, the difficulty in... Uh getting to the truth and uh seeing a a prosecutor as an adversary rather than someone who really wants to get to the truth Mm -hmm. and this is actually the difficulty i face as a scientist because scientists just want to understand the truth Uh, we're not used to others really acting as our adversaries to twist everything that we say Mm -hmm. Um, so jeanette's absolutely right about leanne um absolutely not believing that he would have wanted um to cause her child to die. And yet the prosecutor twisted that by saying, Well, you didn't know your husband was having an affair, did you? And of course she said no. So therefore, maybe he really did want to kill your child and you just didn't know it. Um and you could kind of see how you can twist someone and, and 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 then she's she's left not knowing what to say in response to that line of questioning. So it's like the job of the prosecutor is to make the defendant look as bad as possible. And as guilty as possible, even if you have to twist the truth. And this is really what's frustrating for a scientist. It's frustrating for an advocate such as Jeanette to see that happen. Mm -hmm. And Uh,
0: unfortunately, you know, we're talking about the Justin Ross Harris case here. But I can tell you case after case after case where families um, end up being so traumatized that sometimes even admit guilt to a situation that they have no idea how it even happened and 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 that's what's so sad and you know we're sitting here with a situation that why didn't we put some technology in vehicles immediately when we put the kids in the back seat Mm -hmm. you know changed forever the way that we transport children and now we've decided to criminalize it and um that is one of the biggest things I want to see changed. You know, after we get the Hot Powers Act passed, but but also, this is the public issue. Mm-hmm. Why always end up on the crime page in the newspaper?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: These are these are um, lack of memory or something that no one intended to do, and and, and that's. Very,
2: very frustrating. You know, I think there are two reasons why we haven't had technology in cars. The first is that whether you're a politician or not, there is this assumption that you just don't forget your child in a car. Why should we have to have technology to do something that any good parent would do? Um, And I I would think that uh, has been around for decades. The second probably has to do with the automakers not wanting liability for having a reminder there's a a a child in the car. And I think that's probably why they've been so resistant to um, um, having technology in cars. And at this point, as Jeanette's research has shown, there's no additional cost to have the technology in the car. In fact, it can actually reduce the cost of a new car now to have that technology. Um, So uh, those, I think, are the two reasons why there's been some resistance to technology in the car, even though it's been around for for decades. Um, So I I think that's potentially um, very relevant. You know, this is the situation we are faced with now that we must get the technology. And, and also, I, I am not an advocate. This often comes up, and I don't know if Jeanette agrees with me. I am not an advocate of people getting into the habit of looking in the back seat. Um, people say, look before you lock. Part of the problem, and this one way to look at this is a really great thing, is it's extremely rare phenomenally rare you're about as likely to leave a child in a car and die it's the inverse of winning the lottery okay Uh it's horrifically bad as winning the lottery is wonderfully good um as bad as it is realize it's about 25 children that actually are forgotten in a car and die each year it's about half of all hot car deaths the children die in the u.s each year and in a country of over 300 million people, we just need to realize it's a phenomenally and fortunately extremely rare incident. So any one parent is almost completely unlikely to forget their child and the child will die in the car. So that one time that one in a million parents will forget a child in a car and the child dies... Um, It's so unlikely that person has had a habit to look in the back seat and then will discover the child and therefore the child will not die. That's why I say absolutely to me. If the person recognizes the possibility that they could forget their child in a car, instead of developing the habit of looking in the back seat, just put something on the steering wheel Mm. that says today your child is in the car. Mm -hmm. And that will be the reminder that Mm -hmm. will save lives. It Mm -hmm. doesn't even have to be high-tech. I would love for there to be Mm high-tech. But if you simply take some object and put it on your steering wheel Mm -hmm. and it says, today your child is in the car, then that's it. You Mm -hmm. will always have a reminder when you get out of the car that says your child's in the back.
1: To have a prompt.
2: for
0: Right, a prompt. Unfortunately, prompts... Become background noise if you have it on your steering wheel all the time. But um, I I wanted to totally agree with what Dr. Diamond said about um, you know the the judgment of people. That's the reason Mm -hmm. we haven't gotten the technology in and the automakers. But you know, saying that there's liability. Well, guess what? There's liability for our brakes. There's liability for our engine. Yeah, liability for all of those things. And and really, the technology that's available now can detect if there is a child left behind in a vehicle. That technology can also tell you um, how much that person weighs. That technology can tell you if they have a seat or not. that technology can tell you um, if you're out of position. So what the technology is is called you know a, a occupant or a child presence detector. And if you put that in there, it will let you know if someone's been left alone in a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to add seatbelt reminders in your car because the technology can tell you. And there's so many other uses for it. Um, as we move towards in the future autonomous vehicles, um definitely have to have that technology because there's no way a car is going to go if it's empty mm-hmm. or if the person isn't buckled up. So it is a technology time has come. We we need to get rid of all the parent blaming. Um, Parenting is hard enough Mm -hmm. and to be such a judgmental situation. It's science from Dr. Diamond and others that really explains how this is happening and it is technology that is going to save the children and hopefully end this terrible, terrible tragedy of
2: children dying in hot cars. Let me add just one more comment.
0: Um, Ross Harris's
2: conviction is up on appeal. Um, And if he has a retrial and if I do testify, I think a very important observation I've made is there's a remarkably similar case in which a a judge in Arkansas uh, forgot his child in a car and the child died. Hmm. And the parallels between the case point by point by point, exactly what happened that day, everything, is virtually identical. It is remarkably similar between the judge in Arkansas and Ross Harris's case, except the judge in Arkansas is a spectacular person, a saint of a man, preparing for his anniversary dinner with his wife, and while his child is in the parking lot, dying of heat, the judge is now presiding over cases. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And he's a magnificent man with no flaws whatsoever. And the point I make is, People are doing what they do Mm
1: -hmm.
2: while their child is in the car, potentially dying of heat stroke. Ross Harris just happened to be doing something that was immoral. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: A judge in Arkansas just happened to be presiding over cases as a judge. Mm -hmm. Um, Both just show how the flawed our memory is. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing during the day has nothing to do Mm -hmm. with the failure of their memory and of being human.
1: These kind of cases have happened uh, to people of all walks of life, and haven't they?
2: Uh, oh, it really has. I mean, that's been shown. Gene Weingarten has a very nice article, which won the Pulitzer Prize a decade ago. Um, uh, Jeanette has as her website as well. All walks of life, all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, have forgotten kids and cars. Uh, so
1: you know, what?
0: It doesn't. It doesn't discriminate. Yeah, it can happen anyone, and that's really an important message we want everyone to take away from this. So what
1: what needs to happen is passage of the of the Safe Cars Act, the Hot Cars the Act, Hot,
0: the Hot Cars Act, the Hot
1: yeah. Cars Act, and uh, also the implementation of tech, safety technology to prevent children from being left in cars. And,
0: right. and that is what the Hot Cars Act would do. Mm-hmm. Require child um, detection systems. So then children don't have to be left alone and and, and that really can be the end of this problem mm-hmm.
1: and, and it kind of goes along with the history of of safety in cars as I see it about seat belts, airbags uh, pretty much uh, everything else that the, it, it took it to uh, it took it to uh, active of Congress quite literally to then make it happen
2: right against the uh, automaker's best uh, efforts
1: yeah. OK, uh, really, I commend you both for uh, what it's kind of a, it was a, a problem that could easily remain hidden except for maybe a few media stories until, uh, Jeanette, you went to the legwork to collect data, because early on we asked the question, well, why why are they concerned about your battery running down or uh, everything, anything else? that has a mechanical prompt, why are we worried about these? Well, we have data about people's batteries running down because they have to bring their car in and uh, recharge the battery. We didn't have the data assembled for children dying in hot cars until Jeanette put it together and we're able to, uh, were able to put it in that form. So when, whenever we have uh, we have to assemble the data in a coherent way to get things done, whether it's just a benign thing or a very important thing like this.
0: Yeah, we've often said, "No data, no problem." Mm-hmm. And when you find the data, you can tell there's a serious
1: problem. All right, I appreciate your time, both of you. And I know that there are other forms of uh, there's other forms of deaths that you cover on uh, um, the Kids and Cars website about uh, with with windows, with the backovers. You've you've done things to get cameras in the. To, we now have the cars with the cameras in the back. And it's prevented those deaths. So I commend you for that as well.
0: Well, thank you. And, you know, we, we know these, again, are predictable and preventable. And um, I think anybody that looks at the um, little glow-in-the-dark trunk release or, you know, now that they have a rear-view camera as standard equipment on their vehicle, just think about, you know, the hard work and, unfortunately, the children who have lost lives mm-hmm. um, to Changes
1: happen. Yeah, very important. Thank you right. very much, Dr. Diamond. Do you have anything else?
2: Uh, no, I think we've really covered it quite nicely. The summary would be: uh, you know, we're all human; we're capable of catastrophic memory errors. So we need to be sympathetic first before we're judgmental.
0: has been criminal behaviorology check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm please send questions comments and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology@gmail.com. at gmail.com